0: T-I-D-E, season in Jesus Church. So I don't know what happened in my church history classes, but somewhere I napped away a, a section of church history, which happens in church history classes, if you've ever taken any of those. I just somehow missed the concept of Easter Tide. The word Tide comes from an old English term for time, And the early church got together and said, instead of viewing Easter as the end of something, which traditionally for most of my Christian life and most of my experience in the church world was, Easter was kind of the exclamation point at the end of the Lenten season, right? where you just kind of pull out all the stops, because it's a big day. It's resurrection day. It's Jesus' day. You strike up the band. You fill up the choir. Pastor wears a tie. We all just go off the charts with celebrating and singing and rejoicing. And it is a big day. And we had a great Sunday last weekend. But the whole concept of Easter Tide is, the church leaders got together and they said, you know what? A better understanding of What happened on that resurrection day isn't the end of something, but it's the beginning of something, that there was a tsunami of resurrection life that rolled out of that tomb in Jerusalem. And when that tsunami washes across lives, it brings with it life, more and more and more life. And so they said, you know what we need to do is, we need to view Easter not as a one and done thing. You know, at the end of the big day, you kind of all, you go and feast, right? You have a great meal, you have some ham, you have some potatoes, you got some rolls, and you get this carb coma, and then you go take a nap. And like at the end of an Easter day, and then Monday comes around, you wake up, and you kind of go back to life as post easter they're like no 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 time out easter's the beginning of something so they said let's set aside a 50 day period of time that begins on resurrection sunday and runs to pentecost sunday that is easter tide also called paschal season or paschal time and the time is set aside to focus on the ripple effect of new life that came out like a tsunami from Jesus' tomb in Jerusalem. Now, I don't know about you, but um, when I kind of first started hanging out around the church, I was in high school, and I quickly discerned that there was a question that was really important to the church crowd that I figure out how to answer at some point. And the question was this, uh, are you saved I I wasn't raised around a church environment, so I really didn't know. I didn't have a lot of context for that question, but it didn't take me long when I started hanging out with the church crowd that that was a really important question to get answered. It is an important question. Are you saved? It was kind of code for, have you prayed the sinner's prayer? Have you confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead? Are you saved? It's a good question. An important question. But the Easter tide season, I think, presses the question one step deeper. And that's what we're going to look at today. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 and following. Pull out your notes or check out the screen up here and follow along with me. Here's what the Apostle Paul says in framing up what I think is a better question, a more important question. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Notice the connection in Paul's mind there between being saved and being alive. So if you kind of examine the New Testament literature about being saved, there is this issue of, you know what, You're, I'm a sinner in need of forgiveness. That's true, but it's deeper than that. I'm more than a sinner in need of forgiveness. I'm a dead person in need of new life. So I think the better question than are you saved is the question, are you alive? And that's an Easter tide question. Are you alive? And the ironic thing for me was the crowd that was most interested in the church culture that I first became exposed to, there was this kind of segment that was really, really interested in whether I was saved and would regularly have conversations with me about it. The interesting thing with that segment was I didn't detect a lot of life in that segment. not just saying all of them, but I'm saying for the most part, it was, it was the crowd, stay with me here, it was, the, it was the crowd who liked to have a chapter and verse for every single question I would raise and seemed to have a four-point apologetic outline for any big issue that was brought up. They loved to protest the local high school biology teacher when they thought that teacher was off the reservation with the whole evolution discussion. It was that crowd. This was the same crowd who, when I was bussing tables at Country Kitchen, would leave the four spiritual laws on the table right after the really less than generous tip. (laughs) Anybody with me here, you following? This is the, it's that crowd. No, I know their hearts intent was good. They really, 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 really were concerned. Are you saved? And I didn't have the vocabulary back then, but I wish I would have had Easter Tide vocabulary. And I would have might have responded with, the better question was, well, are you alive? Because in the midst of all the answers and the big thick Bibles and the flowing robes and the kind of aura of spirituality they wanted to project, I didn't detect life. I didn't detect that the tsunami of Christ's resurrection life had kind of rolled over their hearts. And that something was just pulsating out of them. So the question, are you alive? And we could actually view our gathering this morning as a collective group of people following Jesus that are practicing resurrection. That's what tide is. We practice resurrection companionship with a Jesus who is alive today, who rolled the stone away last Sunday, and he is present, and he is with us, and he is here, and you can live that with Jesus life today, and you practice that resurrection life that, like a shockwave that rippled out from that empty tomb in Jerusalem. Are you alive? So, I thought what we'd do today is just kind of a, put together a grid, three characteristics from Peter's life and Paul's life. And just, what would, how would you describe a person who, is, who has been made alive with Christ? Ephesians 2, 1 and following. What's kind of a, what are some characteristics of that kind of a life? And then we'll use that as a mirror back into our own hearts and ask, hey, this Eastertide season, are these things reflective of our life? And then we'll kind of end with an assignment for the week. So we'll start with Paul. Paul's life, a great poster child for Easter tide and tsunami of resurrection life rolling over his life. He writes these words twenty-five years after encountering Christ. So he's been following Jesus for twenty five years. He's writing, excuse me, to the church at Philippi. Philippians 3, verse 7, he says, But whatever was to my prophet, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, and I put in your notes the word "rubbish" comes from the Greek word "skubalon," which means garbage. It means waste. It means manure. He says, "I consider it all skubalon compared to what the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ that I may gain Christ and be found in Him." What you see pulsating out of the Apostle Paul's life is a hunger. When someone has been made alive with Christ, there is an awakening of a spiritual appetite, a hunger for God. You see, hunger is a sign of life. Dead things are not hungry. Boy, I'm playing real Pastor Obvious there, aren't I? If you're dead, you are not hungry. A sign of life is hunger. And if you've been made alive with Christ, look at the Apostle Paul here. He's hungry for Christ to the degree where he says, I found this treasure, it's so great. Everything else is scuba on in comparison to this treasure. What has been awakened in this man's life? It's Psalm 34, eight is what's been awakened. Taste and see that the Lord is good. That kind of a life. And when you taste something that you really, really enjoy, like what's your top of the stack favorite food when you taste it? For me, it's like a 12-ounce bone-in filet that's been prepared perfectly medium plus, seared just right when the knife and the fork hit it, just slide through it like butter. Wow, that sounds really, really good. And when you taste a piece of cow like that, an Iowa boy like me, what do you want? When you taste something really, really good, what do you want? More. Hunger. When you taste Christ, when you taste the Lord, when you feast on the abundance of his house, when you drink from the river of his delights, what do you want? You want more. This is a sign of Easter tide life. This is a sign that the tsunami of resurrection that rippled out from Jesus' tomb has washed over and swept up your life. This is what happened to the Apostle Paul. Has the Apostle Paul always had the appetite of Philippians 3? No, we looked at this, right, this past fall. Paul was formerly known as Saul of Tarsus. If you roll back 25 years, Acts chapter nine, Saul of Tarsus, the text says is breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. That's a different kind of hunger. He's trying to arrest Christians, shut down the Jesus train, do whatever he can to stop momentum for this movement that he thinks is out of control. So he's gonna persecute, he's standing there giving approval to Stephen's death. He's breathing out murderous threats against the church. This is Saul of Tarsus. And what happens to Saul of Tarsus? The resurrected Christ meets him on the road to Damascus. A ripple effect, a shockwave out of Jesus' empty tomb. Jesus is alive. He's present. Saul's on the road to arrest some Christians, and he strikes Saul blind. And ironic, in Saul's blindness, hear this now, he begins to see. In his blindness, he begins to see what? Christ is who he said he was. He is alive. He has claims and plans for my life. And Saul of Tarsus becomes Paul the missionary. Saul, the one who was arresting and persecuting and beating Christians, becomes one of the strongest advocates and authors 13 of the 27 New Testament books. Saul of Tarsus' life demands an explanation. What happened to Saul? Jesus. Jesus happened to Saul. Resurrected Christ happened to Saul. Easter Tide happened to Saul. A ripple effect of life encountered him. And what did it awaken inside of Saul of Tarsus? Hunger. He wanted to know this Christ who's given him new life. This grace that he's tasted. The more that he tasted, the more he wanted to the point where 25 years into the relationship. He said, when I look at my life in comparison to the treasure of feasting on the abundance of who Christ is, it's all scuba on. That's hunger. That is a sign of tide life. A hunger for God. Listen to how Ruth Haley Barton puts it When we pay attention to our longing and allow our questions about our longing to strip away the outer layers of self-definition, we are tapping into the deepest dynamic of the spiritual life. The stirring of spiritual desire indicates that God's spirit is already at work within us, drawing us to himself. We love God because he first loved us. We long for God because he first longed for us. We reach for God because he first reached for us. Nothing in the spiritual life originates with us. It all originates with God, (laughs) which means it's out of our control. An illustration of that is Eastertide season. We had nothing to do with when we were dead in our transgression and sin. The Apostle Paul's issue wasn't just that he was a sinner in need of forgiveness. He was that. It was deeper than that. He was a dead man in need of new life and it was out of his hands to the point when he's walking on the road to Damascus, struck blind, God went looking for him before he was ever looking for God. How about our commentary in our lives, right? The ripple effect across our lives. Do you remember where you were and when it happened? When that tsunami of resurrection life swallowed up your life? Do you remember? And maybe it's today. Maybe some of you rolling here post-Easter, maybe it's today. With a wave of that spirit, the shock wave out of that tomb comes in, does something in your heart, and what does it do? It brings to life something that's been dead. It brings an appetite, and what's a sign of this is hunger. A hunger for more and more and more life. Which spawns second characteristic now. We'll move into Peter's life now for these next two characteristics. Because Peter was also one who in his 20s links up with Jesus as a fisherman. Peter struggled with doubt and fear. Peter struggled with speaking before thinking Often it was Peter who denied Christ three times on the tough stretch of Good Friday. It was Peter who he was kind of on the fence about some things. And tell what? What happened in Peter? Huh. What happened in Peter was Eastertide. A shock wave out of Jesus' empty tomb all of a sudden took over Peter's life, and who's standing in Acts chapter two in the power of the Spirit, fully alive in his resurrection life, been made alive in Christ, it's Peter standing there, and 3,000 people come to life. Not 3,000 people just get saved, 3,000 people come to life. And then the ripple effect, the explanation of the book of Acts is an explanation of the shock wave across the early church. Everywhere it went, there was more and more and more life from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. How about this? Ironic. It made it all the way to Whitestown, Indiana. That's a long way from the center of Jerusalem. It made it to the center of your heart and life, wherever you were, whenever the revelation came to you that Christ is who he said he is. He's done what he said he would do. He is God in the flesh. He's risen from the dead and he's offering you new life. Do you remember where you were? Do you remember what's going on? That's a long way from that empty tomb in the center of Jerusalem 2000 years ago. So far, the shockwave, 190 nations, 2 billion people, give or take a few. That's Easter Tide. And Peter got swept up in this, and Peter became a key player. Notice Peter, there's not a blip on his screen after Easter Tide took him over. He, has all kinds, he was on the fence about all kinds of things, but Jesus transformed his on-the-fenceness with resurrection life, and then he sailed off. And it was Peter, who the historians believe, at the end of his life, being martyred for his faith, said, flip me upside down on the cross. If you're gonna crucify me, I'm not worthy to do it this way. Turn me upside down. I wanna die in Jesus' name out of respect to him that way. That's Peter. So about 30 years after Peter links up with Christ, he writes these words to a group of believers that had kind of begun to grow around the Mediterranean world because the shockwave started going through the Mediterranean. The Romans couldn't stop it and the chief priests couldn't stop it and the elders couldn't stop it and the Pharisees couldn't stop it. It's now all across the Mediterranean world and here's what Peter writes to them. 1 Peter 4, 3 and 4, this is out of the message translation. He says, you've already put in your time in that God-ignorant way of life, partying night after night, a drunken and profligate life, which is kind of like a wayward and wandering life. Now it's time to be done with it for good. Of course, your old friends don't understand why you don't join in with the old gang anymore, but you don't have to give an account to them. They're the ones who will be called on the carpet and before God himself. So here's Peter saying, hey, gang, don't forget, old self, old life, dead self, dead life. There you go. You were drifting a long way from the things of God, wandering way off the reservation. This is old self, dead self, old life, dead life. And then, next paragraph, verse seven and following, First Peter 4, the end of all things is near. How about that sentence? Written a couple thousand years ago. Peter like, hey, it's really close now. And sometimes in church world, especially during election years, you get all kinds of folks, I think the end is really, really near. And when they come asking asking me, Pastor, do you think it's, I mean, we're really, really close to the end times. And my response is consistently, we're one day closer today than we were yesterday. And Jesus said, don't be preoccupied with when it's coming, right? You're not gonna know the day, the time, or the hour, but know this, be ready. Here's Peter, a couple thousand years ago, hey, be on it now, be on it, be ready. It's old self, old life, no, new self, new life. And now he's gonna describe it. What's different for Peter? Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Well, that's something different. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Don't you just love the Bible? The scriptures are amazing. What other book is like this book? It's unbelievably practical for how we live day to day. Here's Peter. He's basically saying, hey, snapshot, gut check time, Old self, old life, remember that? Verse three and four, remember that? Remember that's how you used to live? Remember that's how you used to be? Remember those are your values? Hey, new photo frame, here you go, new life, seven to 11. Here's what's changed, it used to all be just about me, myself and I. It used to be just live in the moment. Eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow you die. If it looks good, sounds good, feels good, do it. Just live for the moment. Peter's like, that's the old way, old life. What changed? Christ rose, Eastertide, the tomb's empty, Jesus is alive, companionship with him, resurrection life, what's changed? Peter says, well, here's what's changed. I got a whole new priority system. I got a new value system. I'm doing something like, he's saying, I'm praying, I'm clear-minded, I'm carving out time to pray. That's, that's different? That's not what Saul of Tarsus was doing before Acts 9. No, but that's what Saul of Tarsus is doing after that, what changed? And then Peter says what? Now, now you've got an eternal perspective, verse seven. Now you're leaning, learning what it means to be a person of prayer, verse seven. Now you understand what true love is, verse eight. And you recognize you've been given gifts, not just for your own sake, but for the greater good of what God's doing in this world. And now you realize your everyday life can be an act of worship to this God who gave you life. It's all changed. And do you see it, the link here for Peter? It's, a, it's the difference between living the Christian life out of ought to versus want to. Do you know when you live following Jesus out of ought to, it's only gonna get you so far? It's probably not gonna be very sustainable. Anybody been there just kind of living out of the ought to's of the Christian life? Well, of course I gotta read my Bible. I ought to read my Bible. Of course I gotta go to church. I ought to go to church. Of course I ought to pray. I ought to pray. Ought to's. I don't get a lot of ought to's out of Peter and Paul in the New Testament writers. I get want to's. And do you know what the want to is tied to? Hunger, desire, longing. Something has been awakened inside of them. And follow me here. When there's an integration between your hunger, your appetites, your desire, your longing, when there's an integration between that and the priorities, the arrangement of priorities in your life, when those two are in sync there's an orderliness, a peace-filledness of the way things are supposed to be in here. So also, when there's this hunger, this awakening, this desire, this longing, and then there's this lag, lagging behind of the rearrangement of priorities. When there's this gap, do you know what that, living in that gap is the sense of disintegration, disorder, out of syncness. And what you see in Peter is, you see the alignment of, well, of course there's a new hunger in my life, so therefore I'm spending my time differently. I'm thinking different thoughts. I'm taking my energies and putting them in different places. I'm spending my resources differently. My priorities are different. Why? Because the tidal wave of resurrection life has washed over my life. I'm not who I was. I'm a different person. I've been made alive with Christ. So hunger flows right into rearrangement. You get nothing out of the scriptures that shows someone coming to life spiritually whose life is not radically rearranged around that new life. It's not there. So if you're feeling a little disjointed in the Christian life these days, one way to examine it is, could there be an out-of-syncness with this new life and the arrangement of my priorities? Or listen to how Thomas Kelly put it in his book, Testament of Devotion. Great book, I commend it to you. Testament of Devotion, Thomas Kelly. He says this, for I would suggest that the true explanation of the complexity of our lives is an inner one, not an outer one. Follow this here. The outer distractions of our interests reflect an inner lack of integration of our own lives. We are trying to be several selves at once without all ourselves being organized by a single Mastering Life, capital L, within us. Each of us tends to be not a single self, but a whole committee of selves. Oh, amen to that. Anybody been there? Boy, there's a lot better way to live than that. Jesus offers that life. Which I wrote down a few questions for myself at this point. Like, when was the last time I just purposefully and intentionally carved out an hour or two or three or four just to be with, to spend time with my resurrected Christ? Or maybe even deeper than that, when was the last time that thought even occurred to me to do that? Those are Eastertide type questions, like the longing when a good friend's coming to town. You get the text message from a friend you haven't seen in a long time, and they're coming to town, and what springs up inside of you right there? When's the last time the rearrangement has happened that way with God? That just rearrange things and shuffle things around so it's integrated with this new hunger, with this desire, with this longing that I want to know Christ, this one who came and lived and died for me. I want to know him. And I want to spend time with him. I want to listen to him. I want to love him and serve him and be with him. And he is alive and he is present and he is here right now. So a hunger for God flows into a rearrangement of priorities and manifests thirdly and lastly into a formation of character. You see, what we see in Peter's life and in Paul's life and in their writings is you see them becoming in character who they already are in identity. If you've been made alive with Christ, your new identity is this. See, so you can't be saved and not be alive. Theologically, that's not, to be saved is to be alive. Now, there can be all kinds of breakdowns in it, Like I was talking about before, sometimes you can just get off track on some things and you can lose sight of some of that life. But to be saved, to have your sins washed away, to be filled with God's spirit is to be raised to spiritual life. To be saved is to be alive. And at the moment, you come alive spiritually. Your identity is one, forgiven, redeemed, adopted, set free, restored. Your identity is changed in a moment. And then what happens? There's a formation process of your character over time that begins right then. That's called discipleship, spiritual growth, growing up in Christ. And that ha- how long does that go on? Until we take our last breath here. And do you know what? When we get to the end of the run, gang, what are we gonna harvest out of this life at the end of the run? The kind of person we've become. That's what's gonna be in the end. It's the character that the spirit of Christ has forged in you. You're going to become who you already are in identity. You see, when you get to the end of the run, at my memorial service and yours, the primary conversation is going to be about who this person was and how this person impacted others. Your character and how your character influenced others. That will be the conversation, and when you stand before God, that's what you're gonna bring into glory, which is why this book records a whole lot more attention and time and energy around what? Way more important to God than what we're accomplishing or achieving. He cares about what we're doing, but you know what he cares more about? He cares more about who we're becoming. This is a story about God developing a people, setting them apart for his own, transforming their character to reflect who they already are. That's what this story's about. That's why this life here, 70, 80, 90 years, however many God gives us on this earth, it's a training for reigning. For what? We're gonna reign and rule with him in glory. And so you're gonna be training in this life for the day when you stand before Christ. And what are you gonna bring into eternity? The kind of person you've become by the power of the Spirit in you. That's what we're gonna bring. We become who we already are. So you see in Peter's life, you see in Paul's life, your life, my life, the part of the spiritual growth process is a formation of our character where there are thoughts that no longer occur to you. How's that happen, Eastertide? The thought doesn't even occur to you anymore. You're different. You're changed. Peter's living 7 to 11, verses 7 to 11. Why? Hospitality, love, forgiving others, serving the kingdom, praying. What hap- His character is changing, which will manifest then affecting what he's doing, the rearrangement of his priorities. They're all integrated and connected together. So welcome to Tide, Eagle family. It is a 50-day period of time where we will pause over these 50 days and say, Are you saved? Good question. Better question, are you alive? Has the tsunami of resurrection life rolled over your heart and brought life? More and more and more life. How do we know? Hunger. Hunger factor. Where's our hunger at? For God, for the things of the spirit. Do We want to know him. Is there a sense of the scuba on comparison going on the more you dive into Christ? Rearrangement. Is there a shifting around of priorities? If someone were to examine my life 10 years ago and my life today, would they be able to say, things are shifting around. There's a rearrangement going on. That should be normal. And then there's formation of character. You should be able to speak with Kendra or Lily or Kaylin or the staff or the people who hang out with me and spend the most time with me. They should be able to say, hey, I see more of Jesus and more of Eric here than I did a year ago or two years ago or three. That's normal. That's becoming in character who you already are. That's what it means to live Eastertide, to be alive. So, Eastertide assignment for the week. That's on your notes. Here's what we're going to do this week all together. We're gonna find some quiet space for at least 15 minutes. Okay, at least 15 minutes. Preferably more, but at least set the bar in a way that we can all accomplish. At least a 15 minute block of time, preferably not in your car going 70 miles an hour on 465. That's not the definition of stillness and quiet or not in an airplane at 35,000 feet going 500 miles an hour. That's probably not what the scriptures are talking about was stillness. I'm talking about stillness, quiet space, 15 minutes. When you find that space, I'd like you to read through Philippians 3, 7 to 9, 1 Peter 4, 3 to 11. And then I'd like you to sit with these three words, hunger and rearranging and formation. And if it's helpful to have the notes from today out for any of you, fine. But just kind of lay those before the Lord. And I just want you to sit with this question. God, what do you have for me this Eastertide season? And then just be still and just listen. Can we all do that together? And then I think it's real helpful to have a conversation with someone. Could be someone under your own roof, could be someone in your life group, could be someone at work, whatever. Just have a conversation with someone about your Easter tide exercise together and just kind of share where we're at with this because the ripple effect of life that rolled out when Jesus rolled that stone away and those footprints walked out of the grave what came with it was more and more and more life that will look like hunger and rearrangement and formation so the team's gonna lead us in a song before I lead us in a prayer. And this song, I kinda landed on a few weeks ago because I felt like it was an tide anthem. And if you need a song to play during tide, I would commend this one to you. And Maybe you just hit it on the playlist and just keep repeating it. It's called Come Alive by Lauren Daggle. And I just want you to kinda soak in these lyrics and reflect on the question, God, what do you have for me? What do you have for me this Easter tide season?